It's great to be back with you here today. Uh, I've been gone for a couple months. I'll, I'll be um, back again next week as well and a couple times late February, early March. But um, I understand that you guys have been talking about making an impact. Um, that's going to be your theme for a while. And um, today I'm going to start a four-part series on an Old Testament prophet who made a huge impact, the prophet Elisha. Um, why Elisha? Well, Elisha was a man who knew God during a dark time. Um, a lot of parallels in some ways to the, the, the dark age that we live in, uh, uh, live in today. Um, the first thing, oops, didn't mean to do that. The first thing I want to talk about today, that's Elisha. We're going to talk about God provides. Uh, we're looking at um, mainly the fourth chapter, the section Carl read. Next week, we're going to talk about God listens. And February 23rd, we'll talk about God heals. And finally, on March 1st, God saves. All lessons from the life of Elisha. If we're going to be people who make an impact, we'll need to know God like Elisha knew God. So where does Elisha come from in the history of Israel? Some of you guys are probably very familiar with this, uh, Elisha's story. Others of you, perhaps not. Elisha the prophet comes after Abraham, after Moses, after David. And he comes before the, the big prophets, the major prophets, um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And he comes a long ways before Jesus. He was mentored, Elisha was mentored by the great prophet Elijah. Now, um, I've just finished a commentary on the book of Kings. And there are a number of places in my commentary where I got confused between Elijah and Elisha. Okay, so if that happens to you at some point in time, you know that even people that write books about Elisha get confused about it sometimes. I, today, I'm mainly going to be talking about Elisha, um, but I may, I may mix that up. Just apologies. Yeah, so his, his story is told in First and Second Kings. Now, he ministered, um, ooh, I don't know if you can see that. Um, he ministered in Israel when Israel was divided into two parts. Uh, the northern kingdom of Israel up here and the southern kingdom of Judah down here. Uh, most of his ministry took place, took place up in the north, um, in the northern kingdom of Israel. And specifically, though, um, we're going to talk about today in uh, the, the capital of, of Samaria. That's one of the key places in, um, in uh, Elisha, Elisha's ministry. So in chapter 4 of 2 Kings, there's a widow um, whose husband has been a, a member of the prophets, and she approaches Elisha with news that her two sons are about to become slaves. They're going to be debt slaves because they just have no money. The practice of selling people, particularly children, into slavery was not uncommon in this world, and it tra tragically, it's still not that uncommon today. This woman is desperate to save her sons. Shannon and I have two sons, and I can't imagine what this would feel like to have sons, children, that would be sold into, sold into slavery. And in the, the world of the Bible, widows, this woman was a widow, widows were highly vulnerable. They didn't have people, they didn't have a spouse, a husband to provide for him, provide for them, provide for her. And her husband was a prophet, which means he didn't make a lot of money. Some things just don't change. 
to make the more prophet sympathetic to her cause, she reminds Elisha that her husband revered the Lord. So when she was in crisis, she turned to Elisha, a man of God for help. Now Elisha eventually comes up with a plan, but he begins by asking questions. His first question is, how can I help you? How can I help you? Let's jump ahead here. There we go. How can I help you is a great response to someone in need. Repeat after me. How can I help you? Yeah, that, that's a good one. Greg, the, the IT director at my seminary, ends every single meeting with me with the question, is there anything else I can do for you? Greg is a servant. I want to say to Greg, uh, can you add some hair to my bald spot? <laughs> The, Eli the prophet Elisha uh, was also a little bit sensitive about his bald spot, but that's a different story. You can read about that in chapter 2. <laughs> now, if Christians asked, how can I help you more often, we would make a bigger impact in our world. So your homework for today is to ask someone, how can I help you? Elisha uses what she has available. In this case, it's just a small jar of olive oil. Elisha tells her, collect all the jars from all your neighbors. And she, he bring, she brings them in, and then she pours her limited oil, and it's going to get multiplied, filling up all, uh, all of these jars. Now, some of these jars might have been quite small, but others of them could have been quite large, up to, holding up to 10 gallons. So Elisha's miraculous provision provided an abundant supply of olive oil, which could easily erase her debts and actually give her a nest egg. Multiplying food. Now, who does that remind you of? Well, in the New Testament, Jesus. And just a few chapters earlier in Kings, Elijah, Elisha's mentor. So even though the dead prophets creditors were not extending mercy to this woman the prophet of god generously met her needs god provides how do you need god to provide for you today peace we talked about that in the worship time hope rest love my hope and prayer for you today is that god gives whatever oil you need. So I'm actually going to come back to the story of the woman in the middle of the chapter, but I'm going to jump to the end, to the, the, the second section that Carl read, um, starting in verse 38. There we go. We're now at a group of prophets in Gilgal, and I apologize, this may be a little um, small for some of you guys to read. Um, I have to put my glasses on to, to see it here. Um, so he, Elisha joins a group of prophets for a meal. It's hard to know exactly what this meal was for, but the meal might have been just to honor the prophet, because Elisha was a big name, a big guy. So they're searching around, one of the, the cooks is searching around for ingredients to add to the stew, which would be difficult during a time of famine, right? There just isn't a lot of food out there. One of the cooks finds a significant quantity of a mysterious gourd 
and he decides to add it to the concoction. Uh, reminiscent of, famous, of, 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 of certain famous last words. Hey, these mushrooms look tasty. Uh, you know, right? It's like this, uh, these prophets are a little bit like my dog, right? If you're not sure what it is, eat it and, try, and find out, right? You know, those of us who, with, with dogs know what that's like. During times of normal harvests, the cooks presumably would have been a little bit more picky. But shortly after tasting it, they blurt out what, what I think is one of the best lines in Scripture. Death in the pot! Death in the pot! Like fire in the hole! The mystery gourd has ruined the entire stew. Which was, I mean, they didn't have much food. And now it's all ruined. Another crisis. Men and women of God in the Bible and today face crises. Crises should not surprise us when they happen to us in our lives. A few chapters earlier, Elisha added salt to purify a poisoned spring at Jericho. That's in chapter 2. Here, he adds flour to this stew, and it becomes safe for human consumption. So the text doesn't state it, but we know who's behind this stew, stew purification. God provided stew for the prophets. The next story, there's a, 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 in chapter, in, in verse 42, a barley bread baker, now that's just kind of fun to say, a barley bread baker arrives offering 20 loaves and some grain. Elijah's servant Gehazi um, kind of wonders, now are, are 20 small loaves going to be enough to feed 100 people? And Elisha compels Gehazi to do it by invoking the word of Yahweh. And he promises not just, not just a sufficient amount, but leftovers. They will eat and have some leftover. Not enough loaves to, eat a, to feed a group of people. The food gets multiplied so there are leftovers. Huh. Now, that reminds me of something. Just like what Jesus did several times in the Gospels. Actually, and Elisha does, Elijah does something similar uh, in, uh, in 1 Kings. God, once again, provides abundantly for his people. Now, as I was working on this sermon, um, sitting at my computer, I was stuck. I was trying to think of a time where God pr provided for me miraculously with food. And I just, I got stuck. And then I realized, it's a miracle that except for a couple of times when I have chosen to fast, I've never been hungry. That's a miracle. And my guess is, for many of us here today, that's been true. We have never really, really been desperate for food. God has been providing abundant food for us. We take food for granted but that's actually not true for much of the rest of the world. Right now, in South Sudan, oh, let's see, let's go here. Um, South Sudan, Syria, and Yemen, millions of people are, are facing famine. Why doesn't God provide for these people who are starving? 
God provides, right? What, but he's not in these locations. Well, there are many reasons why people are experiencing famine. Sometimes the cause is warfare or corruption. It's really hard to blame God in those situations. Well, what about drought? Well, even, for, even when there's drought, we can't really blame God because the reality is there is plenty of food in the world right now. It's just some countries aren't very good at sharing. I mean, literally, in the West, we have too much food. It's, 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 it's unhealthy. God has provided plenty of food to feed the world, and we can't blame God when humans are really the cause. It's, it's, I, I love coming here and hearing about your table ministry and how you guys are involved in feeding the needs, the physical needs of people um, in this area. That's fantastic. Now, Elisha was also concerned about feeding people, so he did something about it. Elijah, Elisha made an impact. God provides food, but that's not the only thing. As, as we keep reading in the story, uh, let's see here. We encounter a woman, this is in the middle of the chapter, a woman from Shunem. Now, we don't know her name, so scholars just call her the Shunammite woman, okay? She's from Shunem, she's the Shunammite woman, okay? So it's kind of in, Shunem is just kind of in the middle here, uh, Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, a um, um, couple of other you, if, if you can read well, you can see a number of these places that have significant things that Elisha's done. So now we're in, in Shunem. So in his many journeys, the prophet Elisha passed through this region often enough for this woman from Shunem to give him regular meals and a guest room. In the Bible, it's usually the women who show hospitality. Certainly it was the case um, in Jesus' time as well. Now, perhaps because Elisha doesn't feel like being in debt to this woman, he asks her, is there anything I can do to help? Essentially, how can I help you? That's just a great question. But like Paul, she has learned the secret of being content. I love the fact that we talked about this. The secret of being content in worship. So she replies, I have a home among my own people. Elisha, however, he's not content. To, she's, she's got a home, she's fine. Elisha's not content to let that go. Um, Gehazi, the servant, points out, well, she is barren and her husband's old. And that's going to put her in a dire predicament. Kind of like the widow at the beginning of the chapter. So Elisha calls her and makes a prediction. In a year, she is going to hold a child in her arms. The woman's response, don't mislead your servant, suggests she has probably already experienced pain in this area. Perhaps a miscarriage. We don't know. But she doesn't want to get her hopes up just to have him dashed. But within a year, this woman gives birth just like Elisha predicted. God provided a son. When our firstborn son, Nathan, was born, we named him Nathan, which literally means gift. God provided. Many of you 
Maybe some of you are, but I'm guessing many of you are not praying for the provision of a child. Some of you probably are. I don't know. But my guess is that some of your parents were praying for you when they conceived. And whether your parents realized it or not, every person here, every birth of, of you, everyone here, was a miracle of God's provision. God provided your parents a daughter, a son. That was a miracle. I met James during new student orientation at my seminary almost 14 years ago, in the fall of 2006. I was brand new to the school I taught at, and used to be called Biblical, um, and James was one of the first students I met. We were supposed to have a lunch with our student advisees, and I go to the room, and I, I, the only advisee I, ha- I meet there is James. James is just sitting there, and I thought, okay, and as we talk, I realized um, James's English is not very good, but I have to say, James's English is far better than my Korean, <laughs> Okay. And we started to chat, but I thought, this could be kind of a long hour. But I couldn't have been more wrong. We, as we started to chat, I, I asked him about his summer, and he says, yeah, we kind of, it was very superficial. And then James decided to go deep. Uh, he said he and his wife have been praying for a son for a long time. And at the very beginning of the summer, his wife became pregnant. They were very excited But then she miscarried yet again. James, we just, I just sat in silence with James. And then James finally said, but God is good. I shouldn't complain. And I didn't say anything right away. But I said, you know, James, God is good. But I think you should complain. Scripture is full of people that complain. The laments. We talked about this. The laments are complaints. Jesus complained on the cross. My God, my God, why? So we prayed, James and I, that God would help he and his wife grieve, lament, and that also God would bless them with a child someday. It was an amazing first experience of meeting this student. James and I bonded. A year later, James took um, biblical poetry a class with me. And one of the assignments was to write a psalm of lament. Well, James wrote about his struggles he and his wife had had becoming parents. And as I read his lament, I wept. About a year later, James came up to me after another class and said, Professor Lamb, um, pray f- with me. My wife's pregnant. We prayed in the hall right then and there. His son was born that spring. We thanked God in the hallway right then and there. And then at graduation, he comes up to me and he said his wife had taken the psalm of lament that he wrote and framed it and put it in the nursery of this child's, his child's bedroom. Praise God. Just like he did for the Shunammite woman, God provided a son for my friend James. So at this point in time, the narrative jumps ahead. Make sure I've got, okay. Uh, Let's see here. 
Maybe that's it. Um, the narrative jumps ahead from the prediction about the boy to his birth, to his speaking, and then he's running around. And one day, the boy runs out to his father in the field crying, My head! My head! Scholars speculate what might have been going on for the boy. We just have no idea. But he, he collapses in the arms of his mother and then dies. This woman, who didn't want to get her hopes up, only to have them crushed, has them crushed in the worst way possible. God gave, and then God took away. Some of you may be able to relate to this woman. You felt like God gave you something, only to take it away later. This woman, though, doesn't wallow in her sorrow. She asks for a donkey, because she's going to go see Elisha. So, um, her husband comes up to her and wonders, why is she going to look for the prophet? Her, her response is, that's, that's all right. There we go. That's all right. And then um, in, the he, in the NIV, it, that's, that's what she says. But in the Hebrew, the that's all right is shalom. Peace. She and her servant travel to, to Mount Carmel to meet with Elisha. Elisha sees her. He sends her, his servant, Gehazi, to ask if she, her husband, and her boy are all right. Again, Elisha uses the Hebrew word shalom three times. I, I've highlighted those in red here. Every time it's, is it all right, is it all right, it's ha-shalom. Shalom, shalom. He's asking the question. And her response is the same she gave to her husband. Shalom. The word shalom is repeated um, in these short verses five times. Twice by the woman, three times um, uh, by other people. But not, this is not the time in your life, in her life, that she, we would expect her to be at peace. The least likely her young miracle boy has just died in her own arms. She must have had amazing faith that even after an extended period of time, Elisha could do something dramatic for her. She had a peace that passeth understanding. How could she have peace when her son just died? Because she understood God provides. She comes up to Elisha, doesn't really, not particularly articulate, just grabs him by the feet. She never states directly what happened to her son, but her questions make it clear. Did I ask you for a son, my Lord? Didn't I tell you, don't raise up my hopes? Elisha says nothing. Often, that's a really good response to someone in pain. Just keep your mouth shut. Weep. Elisha sends his servant to rush on ahead to go back to the boy to lay his staff, Elisha's staff, on the dead boy's face while the mother and Elisha return uh, at a slower pace. Gehazi runs ahead and nothing happens. Sometimes our efforts to bless people make no impact but we still persist. When Elisha arrives, he lays on the boy's corpse. corpse. Elijah had done something similar to the widow um, of Zarephath's son when he died. 
Here the text adds more details. It said he lied on him mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. It's almost like, it's like kissing a corpse. This is just a little strange. And for a holy person to touch a dead body, that's, that's not right. It took faith for the mother to say, Shalom, when her son was dead. But it also took great faith for the prophet to have intimate contact with a cadaver that had been dead for several days. The staff had no impact, but the prophet's body caused the, the, the boy's body to start to warm up. And Elisha persisted. He stretched out on the boy a second time, which the boy starts to sneeze. I love that. Sneezes seven times and finally opens up his eyes. Upon seeing her son alive, the mother falls at Elisha's feet again. She rejoices. God has power over death itself. God provides life. We see God work in a variety of ways. God provides. But in all of these, in this chapter, God works through humans. The primary human is obviously Elisha. Elisha meets the need of the widow at the beginning, the Shunammite woman in the middle, the prophetic company, and then the people at the end. Elisha's miraculous acts get our attention. But let's not forget the less dramatic but equally significant acts of his hospitality not performed by Elisha. The Shunammite woman shows hospitality to Elisha. The prophetic group feeds Elisha. And the barley bread baker <laughs> brings food in the time of a harvest, sharing his precious provisions. Each of those individuals made an impact. Um, unfortunately, there are many obstacles preventing us from making an impact to, to help people in, in need. Um, a couple of years ago when I was working on this, I ran across an article in the Washington Post that said Christians, relative to the rest of the population, are more than twice as likely to blame poverty, poverty on lack of effort. Well, I wasn't surprised. The, the, the findings were still troubling to me. <laughs> if we think people are poor because they aren't working hard, we're less likely to have compassion, and we're less likely to model God's generous provision. I think the reason... Christians blame poverty on a lack of effort is they don't want to share. They don't really believe God will provide for us when we share our provisions. Now, there are passages in the Bible that speak about a how a lack of effort can cause poverty. And I preached on one of those um, back in October um, in Proverbs 24. But throughout Scripture, we see poverty is far often, far often caused by natural disasters, injustice, and oppression. Just let's look at this chapter right here. Why are the people that are poor here? Now, this is a small sample size, but there's no hint in this chapter that poverty is caused by a lack of action, lack of effort. The three reasons for poverty here are death, famine, and choosing ministry as a profession, like the prophet. Elisha encountered a variety of people who were somehow impoverished, but he never wavered in his commitment to provide for their needs. One could argue that Elisha himself was poor, since he needed to be provided for by the, the widow, and he needed help from the Shunammite woman. Like Elisha, Jesus always helped people who were needy, 
and poor. And Jesus himself was helped by others in his own poverty. Let's hope Christians don't think Elisha and Jesus were poor because of a lack of effort. The main reason people are poor, it's a contributing factor, but that's not the main reason. The main reason isn't a lack of effort from the poor, but a lack of those for those of us who don't share. If we believe God provides, we are free to provide for the needs of people around us. That will make an impact. My father passed away. That's him in the middle with my sons on the either side. My father passed away two years ago. My dad was a gamma-ray astrophysicist. When I tell people what my dad did, I say, it's not rocket science. It's more complicated than that. <laughs> okay, some of you thought that was funny. So when I was in grade school, my father switched fields of research. He was doing um, high-energy research, which think quarks. Quarks, little, little, little tiny things, quarks. He switched from quarks to gamma-ray astrophysics. Think quasars, okay? At the time, I was, I was in grade school. I didn't understand why my dad, this was a pretty big change. I didn't understand why my dad changed fields. But my mom, I knew it was risky and it was hard, but my mom explained it to me later when I was in high school. She said, Dad's high-energy research required him to make a lot of trips to Chicago. We lived in Iowa at the time. He was away from home a lot. And in order to spend more time with his family, he, changed, he made a career change. He changed jobs in order to be with us. Over the course of my, my father's life, he modeled for me the generous provision of my Heavenly Father. Now, I desperately miss my dad. But what gives me hope is God has power over death, the ultimate act of divine provision. Here, in this story, God resurrected the son of a woman from Shunem. Earlier, in the Elijah narrative, God resurrected the son of a woman from Zarephath. And in the Gospels, God resurrected the son of a woman from Nazareth. God's own son, Jesus. Now, I'm confident my heavenly father brought my earthly father to his heavenly home where he was re reunited with my mother and someday will be with me as well. Why am I confident? Because I know God provides.